1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Egypt, sexual harassment and abuse have long been rife. This year, though, cases are increasingly coming to light, and justice starting to be served. But hardened conservative views among both men and women must shift before real change can happen. And yes, Game of Thrones was epic. It was visually lush. It was packed with intriguing characters. But my word, it was long. 60 episodes, three solid days of watching. We take a brief look at why television these days is anything but. First up, though, There was no ambiguity in a statement from Chris Krebs on Thursday. The head of America's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, charged with monitoring the presidential election, said the vote had been the most secure in U.S. history. That set the clock ticking on his tenure. Yesterday, outgoing President Donald Trump fired him. By tweet, of course. Two weeks on, and Mr. Trump staunchly refuses to concede the election— Courts are throwing out his legal team's challenges left and right. Yesterday, Republicans in Michigan failed to block the certification of results in Wayne County, where President-elect Joe Biden won with a comfortable margin. Make no mistake, these squabbles are nothing more than theater. None of them, no some of them, can change the outcome of the election. But they do matter. Mr. Trump's obstinacy is keeping America polarized and angry some Republicans have spoken out, including former National Security Advisor John Bolton.
2: Every day that he delays under the pretense that he's simply asking for his legal remedies uh, ultimately is to the country's disadvantage.
1: But most in the party are staying in line behind Mr. Trump, quietly allowing him to chip away at that most fundamental Democratic institution of voting. The more immediate concern is the handover to the incoming president, On Monday, Mr. Biden made the point that a messy transition amid a pandemic will cost lives. More people may die if we don't coordinate. But he said that Mr. Trump's foot stamping wouldn't hold him back. I find this uh, more embarrassing for the country than debilitating for my ability to get started. America's lame duck period is anomalously long a sign that it takes a lot of time, organization, and cooperation to ensure a stable handover of power. Quixotic or no, Mr. Trump's post-election sideshow is threatening that stability.
3: As of right now, there is no formal transition. The General Services Administration, which is supposed to give the incoming administration offices access to secure communications, has not been allowed to do so.
1: Idris Kalun is The Economist's U.S. policy correspondent and is based in Washington.
3: The incoming Biden administration is not consulting with the outgoing Trump administration on important things like troop drawdowns in the Middle East that are being discussed on vaccine distribution. All of that is not happening right now because of the president's refusal to concede
1: and and clearly that's going to be damaging for for Mr. Biden as, as he comes in, in in particular on matters of of national security we were still in the middle of of a pandemic
3: yeah Biden at his he gave a speech on Monday on the economy and he said that more people may die if we don't coordinate and you know he's not getting his presidential daily brief on the classified intelligence secrets that um, the incoming president should be getting there's a pandemic going on. The plans to vaccinate most Americans is gonna be a significant logistical undertaking that planning probably needs to begin on. At the same time, a lot of agencies are gonna experience a lot of wasted time as a result of not getting on with the transition. The Trump administration is making federal agencies draw up budgets for the next year, which will of course never materialize. And America has a huge number of political appointees that need to be installed, the sooner that you can get through with that transition, uh, I think the, the better and more secure. One of the conclusions from the 9-11 commission report was that the shortened transition in 2000 between Bush and Gore when there was a dispute over who had won the presidency because of a narrow win in Florida hindered awareness of the possibility of a terroristic attack.
1: And, and how are fellow Republicans reacting to all this?
3: Most of them in the initial weeks after the election have said that Trump is right to pursue the cases that he is pursuing, Uh, most notably Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate majority leader. You've seen in the past weeks a little bit of inching towards reality. Some Republican senators are now saying that it is likely that Biden will be the president and that maybe he should be getting his presidential daily briefings after all. But that's different than acknowledging that he won a fair and free election. You know, I think there's a rationale to it. down Republicans benefited from Trump's turnout, and they know that no one energizes the base as much as he does. So I think in the short term, they see it as advantageous to humor the president. You see that the two senators who are in the runoff in Georgia that's coming have come out very strongly in favor of the president's theory, even arguing that the Republican secretary of state in Georgia ought to resign for alleged improprieties in voting. And in the medium term, maybe they think that it's also a winnable strategy that Trump becomes something of a kingmaker in the Republican Party even after he leaves office. And so just as fear of offending him has kept many Republicans in line for the last four years, perhaps that persists even past January 20th.
1: And so is it your belief then that, that uh, Mr. Trump doesn't necessarily fully believe he's won the election, but that this narrative helps him stay in, in that uh, attention-grabbing kingmaking role?
3: I I think that narrative does help sustain that. It has certainly managed to keep his grip on the Republican Party for another few weeks. But we also see that the base is firmly on his side. Our polling with YouGov showed that 86% of Republicans who voted for Trump in the recent election thought that Biden had won illegitimately. That reflects the fact that they take their cues from from the president. Conservative media, like Fox News, have said that Biden won the presidency. But Republican elites, like senators and, and representatives who we think might impact that, see that polling. And I think that they are reluctant to uh, say much against the president.
1: And, and about those right-wing media, that's been another facet of this that uh, that seems to be coming to a head, Fox calling Arizona before any other network did. The, the, the sort of, the, the romance between Mr. Trump and, and, and Fox News in particular seems to have ended.
3: Yes, uh, the president seems to have had a falling out with Fox News, which previously had been a really important boost to him. Most Republicans were getting their news from Fox News and they called Arizona for his opponent and hosts have been acknowledging that Biden won as opposed to prosecuting his case. Trump is sufficiently upset about that, that he is encouraging his viewers now to go to even fringier outlets, places like One America News Network or Newsmax, which are fully on board with the idea that the election was in some way stolen. Some people think that by creating this split between Fox News and other aspects of the conservative media, that Trump is sowing the seeds for his own media empire. People thought that if he had lost the 2016 contest, that that was going to be his plan as well.
1: But there is a, a bigger, more troubling aspect to this, which is that a, uh, a free and fair election, as election f- officials have called it, is being viewed widely, you say, as, as, as fraudulent. I mean, that is putting some cracks in American democracy that weren't there even after four years of, of Trump in office uh, chipping away at institutions.
3: That's fairly extraordinary and so is the spectacle of a sitting American president refusing to concede that he lost election and insisting that he's going to remain. The chance that he does that is obviously close to zero, but the fact that it's, it's still happening is, is fairly remarkable in, in American history. And, you know, once you create a narrative of fake and fraudulent elections, that's hard to, to put away. America was already a pretty divided place during the Trump era. But if you add the feeling that, you know, elections are unfair and are stolen, these are the precursors to civil unrest, violence. You know, this is a well-documented pattern that is pretty concerning to see uh, erupt in America now.
1: Idris, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: There's more from Idris on Checks and Ballots, our weekly show on American politics. In the latest episode, he joins the regular team to discuss how the Biden administration intends to tackle America's latest COVID-19 surge, with or without the outgoing administration's help. Find checks and balance from your preferred podcast purveyor.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world.
4: extremely common in public spaces. So if you're a woman in Egypt and you ever, you know, take a walk on the streets, you've definitely been subjected to at least verbal sexual harassment. And if you've lived here for a while, then you've definitely been subjected to other kinds of sexual violence in public spaces.
1: Nadine Ashraf is a philosophy student in Cairo who campaigns against sexual harassment and assault.
4: I came to a moment of anger after years and years and decades of feeling like issues like sexual harassment and sexual violence aren't really taken seriously. I just reached a point of frustration and so naturally I just took to social media.
1: And so, earlier this year, Ms. Ashraf launched Assault Police. The Instagram account attempts to draw more attention to sex crimes. The account now has more than 200,000 followers. It's become part of a much wider reckoning with sexual violence in Egypt this year. But it's not been a straightforward path.
5: More than 90% of women in Egypt say that they have experienced sexual harassment or abuse. And for many, it's just a normal part of daily life.
1: Amy Hawkins is a journalist for The Economist.
5: In Egypt, men have long policed women's behavior and there are quite antiquated notions of morality. While at the same time, they tolerate crimes against women. But this year, there's been a bit of a reckoning with that, mainly driven by women on social media.
1: And so how did that get started? What what sparked this conversation this year?
5: So this particular conversation started in June when a student at the American University in Cairo posted a warning on Facebook about a former student, Ahmed Bassam Zaki. The original allegations about him were made in 2018, but nothing had been done. And when this student found out that Ahmed Bassam Zaki was back in Egypt she decided to post a warning on Facebook accusing him of sexually harassing and blackmailing women. That post disappeared soon after Nadine Ashraf launched Assault Police and it repeated the allegations against Mr Zaki and listed more. Now, it should be said that Mr Zaki denies all the allegations against him. But Mr Zaki was then arrested and other cases started making headlines. The National Council for Women, a government body, urged other victims of sexual violence to come forward, and over the summer, Parliament approved a law granting victims of sexual abuse anonymity.
1: So all of that indicates a, an increasing willingness to to acknowledge sexual assault. Does, does that mean that there have been more prosecutions since?
5: So far, there haven't been any high-profile prosecutions. But some of the people accused of sexual abuse have been arrested and charged, including Mr. Zaki. But also some of the accusers have been arrested and charged. The most high-profile example of this was over the summer, a woman alleged that a group of wealthy young men had gang-raped her at a five-star hotel in Cairo in 2014. But it took weeks of campaigning by activists for the public prosecution office to actually do anything about the allegations. And so by the time they started trying to arrest some of the suspects, many had fled the country. Five men have since been arrested, but two are still at large, and three of the arrested men have been charged with rape, which they deny. But also four of the people who came forward as witnesses and two of their acquaintances were arrested and charged with crimes such as violating public morality or debauchery. And Human Rights Watch says that two of those people have been detained and tortured and subjected to invasive physical examinations.
1: So hang on, the authorities charged the witnesses themselves, the ones who were speaking up against these crimes?
5: Yeah, exactly. And that's a bit of a repeat pattern. So another case over the summer was a teenager called Aya Kamis who accused a man a friend of hers, actually, of holding a razor to her face and raping her, and she also accused the police of ignoring her claims. She broadcast the accusation on TikTok, where she had more than 100,000 followers. That video went viral, and the police then picked up the whole group, so her, the accused rapist, and the friends she was with that night, who had all been having a party together. But the authorities seemed more concerned with their use of hash and the mixing of unmarried men and women, as they were about the allegation of rape. Her attackers were eventually charged with rape and other offences to do with facilitating the rape. But Ms. Kamis was also charged with prostitution, drug use and violating family values. And it was only when she completed a three-month programme to correct her concepts that the charges against her were dropped.
1: So despite this recent push, then the legal system is, is really failing to protect victims?
5: Yeah, so Egypt does have laws against sexual violence and harassment. The law against sexual harassment was only passed in 2014, But victims tend to keep quiet, and there are lots of reasons for this. The authorities have been known to subject women to so-called virginity tests, and they also ask women about their sexual history to muddy a case where there's an accusation of sexual assault. And as Salma El-Tazi, a documentarian who focuses on sexual violence, told me, the law is just what you write on a piece of paper, and the real problem is the attitude of Egyptian men and women. Most of Egypt's judges and prosecutors are men, and they decide what violates Egyptian values. So recently, they've been using a cybercrime law that was passed in 2018 to crack down on women dancing on TikTok and doing stupid videos. Since April, they've arrested 10 female TikTok users on charges of violating family values and inciting indecency or debauchery. And some people have argued that these women were treated more harshly by the authorities because they come from lower class backgrounds. Six of the women have been sentenced to two years in prison and two have been sentenced to three years in prison.
1: But the judiciary here is just kind of embodying attitudes that are more widely held about what is indecent, what is debauched?
5: Yeah, exactly. So according to a survey done by the UN in 2017, 64% of men and 60% of women believe that women should marry her rapist. And there are all sorts of other kind of antiquated values that are held by society. So three quarters of men and actually a higher proportion of women said that women who dress provocatively deserve to be harassed. And in fact, Egypt is interesting because only in Egypt are the views of young men as conservative as those of older men when it comes to gender, according to Amal Fahmy, who worked on the survey.
1: And so what's your view on, on the conversations that, that women such as Ms. Ashraf have, have started in terms of influencing th- those values, those, those beliefs?
5: It's definitely causing a big conversation in, in Egypt, and it's been not just on social media, but also on popular talk shows, on radio shows. The topic is definitely being discussed, which is probably a good thing, but it will take a long time and probably a bigger push by the government if they actually want to change and social values. As for Miss Ashraf, she herself is optimistic that things are starting to change in Egypt. I didn't expect
4: to be taken seriously by not only the people, but by the government and by NGOs. I think we're at a point where um, sexual violence is being taken a lot more seriously than it had been in the past. And I'm hopeful that we can build on that change and get things moving from a legal perspective.
1: Amy, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Unlike some broadcast media, we're just gonna cut to the chase here
2: television programs go on and on and on. They're getting longer and longer, and they're more and more full of longers, which are put in just to fill time rather than to move the story along. Adrian
1: Wooldridge is The Economist's political editor, a columnist for our sister magazine, 1843, and a dogged reporter of trends as observed from his couch.
2: (laughs) One example of that is Game of Thrones, the most popular television show of the last decade. And it's stretched to over 60 episodes. But I must say, the last series in particular really did seem to drag on. They couldn't bring it to a conclusion. And why do you suppose that is? Why are shows getting longer and longer? Well, I think it's a mixture of technology and artistic ego. The technology available allows people to go on and on and on. There's all of this digital space to fill. And artists are, by definition, egomaniacs. They like to drone on. They like to take up people's time. They need to be disciplined, but there's no reason technologically to discipline them. It used to be the case that in the old days of linear TV, episodes had to fill an hour or half an hour. They had to take you from one advertisement to another. There was a premium on time. And so the people who ran these things got people to move along at some speed. You know, if you think of Friends, it lasts for half an hour. Well, in fact, it's probably 20 minutes given all the advertisements. So they have to be very, very snappy, very, very fast. Now, adverts have mostly gone. The space has expanded and content is sort of sagging in order to fill all of that space.
1: But look, during a pandemic, during lockdowns, surely something long, immersive is a good thing.
2: It is a good thing. And I think the best series are immersive. They are long. They take up your time. They introduce you to a whole world. So if you think of The Wire... It's a world that you're introduced to. If you think of The Sopranos, it's a world you're introduced to. It gives them time to develop minor characters, to fill in the background, to really immerse the audience. But however, not everybody is as good as The Wire and The Sopranos. And so what ought to be a virtue is becoming a vice. And instead of being immersed in what's going on, we get lost or annoyed. You have endless scenes of people walking along beaches, splash, 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 or talking about the meaning of existence. Classic example of this is, of course, Breaking Bad, a wonderful, a brilliant series. But I remember one episode in which you have a fly buzzing around for an inordinate amount of time. And I I think it broke the spell of what's a rather marvelous program.
1: And is there something of a pushback here? Are producers noticing that people like you are getting a little bored?
2: The boss of Netflix, Reed Hastings, once described old-fashioned television as managed dissatisfaction. You know, just as you're about to get really into a program, you're told that you have to wait till next week for more of it. And I think what we have now at the moment is quite a lot of unmanaged dissatisfaction as we're sort of left meandering through these terribly long programs. And I think people are beginning to say, well, actually, my time's valuable. So I think consumer pressure will mount. And I think these bluviating artists will eventually be brought under some sort of control and discipline. From my point of view, it can't happen too soon.
1: Adrian, thanks for your time and for keeping it brief. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.